This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of July 4th, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 327 of Defender Radio. As many as 30 Vancouver Island marmots are presumed dead after their embedded transmitters failed to activate following their hibernation this spring. The Vancouver area media picked up on this story and made it national news. After all, people in the area have loved these animals for years. But for the rest of Canada, the coverage of 30 missing rodents left us scratching our heads. What are Vancouver Island marmots? Why are so many people interested in them? What makes them different from other marmots all across the country? And what difference would it really make if they lived on Vancouver Island or not? To get answers to these questions and many more, Defender Radio was joined by Adam Taylor, Executive Director of the Marmot Recovery Foundation. Why don't we talk about what is a marmot? I mean, they're one of those animals I, I know about because of what I do. But I, up until, I think, last year when uh, uh, my boss went to the release you guys did, I had no idea what a marmot was. They're, uh, yeah, they're, they're an interesting creature. And um, from my perspective on Vancouver Island, you know, beginning to work on the marmots, you're introduced to this whole new world up in the Alpine. And there's a whole bunch of species up there that we don't think about, uh, most of us that live down at lower altitudes. You know, we don't even realize that they're they're up there. Uh, marmots are a rodent, so about half of all mammals are rodents, uh, and in particular, they belong to the squirrel family. So uh, it's not unreasonable to think of a marmot as a really big, oversized alpine ground squirrel. Uh, all right, so maybe that's not how we normally think of squirrels, <laughs> but uh, but that so that gives you a sense of sort of where they fit. So they're they're closest relatives that we see down here on a regular basis. Well, here on Vancouver Island. Out in mm. the rest of Canada, it's a bit of a different story, isn't it? Yeah, you're going to see some groundhogs and uh, other species of squirrel. Well, and groundhogs are a marmot. So are they? Mar- yeah, oh, they're Rotamonax. So they're uh, uh, members of the same genus, not quite as closely related as the yellow-bellied marmot or the hoary marmot, which both occur in BC. Uh, and the hoary marmot in particular is a very close relative of the Vancouver Island marmot. Um, so these marmots, so they live up in the high Alp or Vancouver Island marmots, again, groundhogs and uh, Colombian ground squirrels, um, all of those species, yellow-bellied marmots even, they live at lower altitudes. But the hoary marmot and the Vancouver Island marmot, they're really kind of an alpine species. And the Vancouver Island marmot in particular is adapted to living in these really uh, high alpine avalanche bowls where typically in the past a lot of snowfall was coming and then the avalanches would basically clear out any of these uh, trees that were beginning to grow up into the into the bowl and you would also begin to see a lot of talus a lot of these little rock falls and that's where the marmots will establish their burrows and they do have these just amazing burrows that can get quite surprisingly deep um, down under these rocks and, and that's where they're going to rear their young. It's part of their safety mechanism. So they're going to retreat to their burrow if they detect a predator. And of course, it's also where they hibernate. And Vancouver Island marmots are, as, as far as I know, I don't know of any other animal that actually is hibernating for longer than it's awake. 
So Vancouver Island Marmots hibernate for seven months of the year, and then during the remainder of five months, they've got to do, you know, basically everything else in their life cycle. So they breed, they produce their pups, they rear their pups, and then they've got to get enough fat on before the fall to survive through the rest of their hibernation. And that that's a real challenge. See, that sounds kind of like me with football season. Um, it's it started now, so you know I'm getting out and I'm I'm waking up. Yeah. But come November, I'm just gonna get fat and sleep a lot. Um, well, I wish. But now it's a good weight loss plan. You know, I'm, I'm trying to emulate that. You know, thirty percent of their body mass they're gonna lose during hibernation. So if I could pull that off, that would be good. Well, but you have to put it back on. Well, that's that. the part I'm already good at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's limits to how close I want to emulate the marmots. <laughs> um, now, how how big are they? I think that's something. And again, I've only seen photos of them, so I have no concept as to how large these animals are. They're, you know, they're bigger than people expect. So they can get up to around seven kilo, kilo uh, seven kilograms. So that's uh, 15, 16 pounds. Um, so by body weight, that's only the size of a large cat, but when you actually see them, they've got a lot of fur. They're really big and bushy, and they look about the size of a small beaver. So um, they're not a small animal. Yeah. And I, this is where it gets interesting to me, because the Vancouver Island Marmot is its own what subspecies, I guess, right? It is it is identified as a separate uh, genus, I believe it is? No, it's, a, it's its own no? species. So species, uh, okay. it's a member of the same genus as the, well, all the other marmots. So there's 14 species or 15 species now of marmots in the world. And uh, they're all members of that same marmota genus. So, but it's its own species within that. And there is a little bit of, and this is, this is where I, I'm married to a taxonomist. <laughs> so uh, I cannot afford to get these bits wrong. If you, um, if you have note cards, I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, no, no, it's uh but I, I have to defend taxonomy. So Ooh. it is very closely related to the hoary marmot and to a species that only occurs in the U.S. called the Olympic marmot. Uh, but it is taxonomically quite different. So that is to say that even though its genetics are really similar, that is not the end-all and be-all of what makes a species a species. There are some biologists out there that will argue that point, by the way. Uh, but... But I, I have my, my battle lines drawn pretty clearly for me. So <laughs> taxonomically, the Vancouver Island Marmot is quite different than, say, the Hoary Marmot. It's larger. It has different colored plumage. So even though they're very closely related genetically, there are some important um, evolutionary distinctions that have occurred since the Vancouver Island Marmot established on Vancouver Island. And it it is classified as a distinct species. So it is its own species. And, and there's been a little bit of debate about that, but... Uh, not not tons. It's always come up that, no, it, it really is its own species of marmot. Well, and I mean, if we look at it, uh, the evolutionary history, I imagine that, um, or the natural history even, that in order for them to be in that very specific region where they live, they would have had to have migrated there some time ago and separated from the, the, the other marmots you might find on even on the island. You know, and this is... We don't have any other marmots on the island. So the Vancouver Island marmot is the only one, aside from some yellow-bellied that seem to show up every now and then, but they are probably brought over in construction equipment. Uh, and this is one of the things, you know, and again, this is the biology geek in me. So this is one of the things that makes islands special, is this is where you get the really unique species evolving. And the Vancouver Island marmot, as you say, it's a really good example of that. At some point, 
in time, hoary marmots or Olympic marmots came and they established on Vancouver Island. And then they began to adopt to the conditions that we have here. And they began to specialize, to live in these alpine bowls. At one point in time, uh, closer to the last ice age, they were much more widely spread across Vancouver Island, probably as more of the island had those alpine-like conditions. And, and then as the glaciers retreated, the marmots retreated as well, but they continued to adapt and to be able to find ways to, to survive in this somewhat unique, uh, unique area on, on the island. Yeah, and that's... Um... I mean, that's, that's, it's almost right out of the textbooks talking about the pigeons, uh, that Darwin looked at, um, how they evolved very slight differences based on the environments, um, and how that sort of led to separate species. It's, yeah, I think we could probably sit and talk about that for hours, but, um, good. um, no, no it's not good. People aren't going to listen through all of that. You and I just <laughs> gabbering. <laughs> we'll just right, call I'm the episode. I can move on. I, I could talk about that stuff for hours. I, I love it. Uh, we'll just call this episode the, the Beagle, and we'll we'll be happy. Um, now, I guess I, the obvious question is, what's happened? I, 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 this is a species that obviously specializes very highly, that yeah. at one time was somewhat prevalent. So we're looking at what? Now less than 300 on yeah. Vancouver Island, and therefore the entire world. So, I mean, there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to the marmots, especially what happened, uh, what the marmot population was like historically. Because of where they live, there is uh, not a lot of people who go up into the mountains of Vancouver Island. And, you know, until the earlier part of the 20th century, there was nobody who really made any effort to uh, account for marmots. And even until the 1970s, there were no real efforts to count them. And until the 1990s, there, there really wasn't, even then, you know, real any serious effort. There were some sort of loose um, stabs made at sort of guesstimating the number of marmots, but, but nothing really thorough. So in the 1990s, uh, some biologists really began to note, and alpine hikers began to note that there weren't marmots in areas where there used to be marmots in the past. And, you know, the immediate problem is that there was no obvious reason why. And, and I think marmot, the, you know, the marmot situation is it's really, uh, I think, a really important one for people to understand because it's different than most other endangered species, but it illustrates issues that all species on this planet are facing right now. The marmot's habitat was basically unchanged. You know, they live in treeless bowls, so you can't log an area that doesn't have trees. Uh, and they're so high up in the alpine, there weren't a lot of people there. They've never been a species that, you know, anybody's targeted for hunting. So there's this big question, you know, why are they disappearing? And at the, at the beginning, there was so little information that there were serious questions about whether they actually were or not. And it took a lot of effort to, uh, to convince other biologists that no, these, these marmots used to be here and they are really not anymore. By the time that people really got a handle on this, the population had crashed to the point where there was less than a hundred marmots left in the wild. And, uh, and so that was really dramatic. And so, you know, you begin to ask, well, well, why? I mean, if their habitat wasn't touched, uh, why are the marmots disappearing? And, what we think happened, you know, you're trying to piece together the story afterwards, which is always harder to do. But what we think happened is as there were these large scale changes on Vancouver Island, so the development, logging and road building, 
As the landscape changed, the marmots began to move. And in particular, as areas were cleared, marmots moved down out of these alpine meadows into these lower elevation, quote, meadows. And, and they looked like ideal places to the marmots at that time. But as the trees began to grow back in, the marmots didn't move back out. And unfortunately, they're not adapted to live in forests. And in particular, their primary defense against predators is being able to see a predator. And then they've got that social response. So they whistle when they see predators, and that's a warning to the remainder of the colony. Marmots duck for cover. But you can't do that in a forest because your sight lines are really limited, so you can't see predators coming. On top of that, a lot of clearing meant that there was a lot more forage opportunities for ungulates, for deer and elk. And those are the primary species that wolves and cougars live on. Marmots, the reality is marmots aren't a very good meal for a cougar or a wolf. There's just not enough of a marmot. They'll take them if they can find them, if they happen to be in the area. But, but they're probably, in the past, they probably weren't in those areas much because their primary food sources, the deer and the elk, weren't up in those areas where the marmots were. Well, with the clearing, deer and the elk moved up. Cougars and wolves followed them. The marmots, in turn, they moved down a little bit. And suddenly you have this scenario where, without ever altering the core habitat where marmots lived, you've dramatically changed the way that they're interacting with other species. And unfortunately for the marmots, it was not uh, you know, a good scenario for them. And it really was big, big trouble as they began to be more heavily predated on simply because they weren't in the areas where they should be. It's it's remarkable how much other changes affect some things, and that's uh, one of the when I got into this work, I was uh, I was working as a news reporter and covering a lot of coyote conflict and dog conflict, and people would say, well, why are there all these coyotes here? Nothing's changed uh, in a suburb or in a subdivision, and you look five kilometers down the road, and what used to be a meadow or a forest is now you know a parking lot or a car dealership. They say, yeah, but that's all the way over there. But people yeah. forget that we <laughs> property lines are a human invention. Um, ecosystems don't know property lines. They don't exist. So what happens hundreds of kilometers away could potentially impact what happens in your backyard. And that really sounds like what's happened here. Yeah, I, I absolutely. You're absolutely right. Uh, ecosystems themselves don't have sharp borders. You know, where we think of one ecosystem ending and another ecosystem beginning. I mean, that... That's a creation we've made to help ourselves understand the environment. But that's not necessarily the way wildlife experience it. And certainly when you change one ecosystem, those impacts, they bleed. They bleed into other ecosystems, even if you haven't, quote, you know, altered them directly. We alter them every time we make a change in, in any ecosystem. We change everything that's going on around it because all of those systems interact with one another. You can't really draw those hard, sharp lines that we we would like to, because it makes it easier for us to understand. That's not actually the way it works. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I before we get into some of the more specific recovery efforts, I want to play a bit of a devil's advocate and yeah. say, why is it important? I mean, as you said, you know, this this is kind of a chubby ground squirrel yeah. um, that's out in the middle of nowhere, uh, so to speak. Um, why is it important? That we that we do anything to protect this species. Why should we not just let it uh, uh, go the way of the dodo? I think you know first and foremost, I really believe that we have a moral obligation to the species that we share this planet with. 
these changes are are happening because of impacts that humans have had that we've had and we have a moral obligation to try and protect the animals that can't protect themselves to try and conserve the diversity of life on this planet uh, and again this you know as i say i really feel like this is an important moral issue i have children and i i want to leave this planet in better shape for my children than um than i inherited it now the reality is that's not what's happening on this planet right now the reality is that we are losing species at a tremendous rate and speaking as a conservationist and i've worked with uh, a number of other endangered species in the past uh, it's also important that we have an opportunity to have a win to have a species where we do successfully recover it um, many of the endangered species you know, there, there is a harsh reality that in my lifetime, they're never going to be not endangered. There's just no roadmap to bring those species back because their habitat is actually gone. You know, you can't create areas that are now overrun by houses. Even if you did demolish a city, those habitats would take, you know, decades to hundreds of years to come back. So I really feel, you know, from a conservation perspective, it is so important to to save the species that we can and the marmot is is unique it's unique in the sense that as i alluded to earlier its habitat is still there and it's still in good shape we can save this species you know the, the preconditions are all in place and and that really gives me hope i i think that you know it's hard it's hard sometimes to think about you know when we talk about trying to save the environment or save the planet it, that's a really big thing that we're talking about. And sometimes you have to find areas in there where you can really have a have a win, where you can say, you know, uh, we were, we're not going to win for every species, but we can win with this species. We can bring this species back. And, and for me, uh, that allows me to be optimistic about the future. And it allows me to feel like we can make positive changes and and those changes will be reflected in the environment. Um, beyond that, you know, Vancouver Island marmot, I mean, there is a, a hard truth. If it disappeared tomorrow, how would ecosystems on Vancouver Island change? And the answer is not, probably not very much. I mean, there's, there's only a couple hundred of them out there right now. They're not having a huge impact because there's just not very many of them. But, how would those ecosystems change if there were a lot more marmots? That's a little bit harder to say, but um, but chances are that you know there wouldn't be huge dramatic changes. There might be a few things. We might see more things like western toads, for instance, up in the Alpine, which is kind of unusual to think about, but we know they occupy marmot burrows. Um, but they're probably not a, one of those keystone species that's really driving uh, an ecosystem that we sometimes think about. So. We do know, though, that biodiversity in general, and as I just mentioned, the way that ecosystems and species interact with one another, it's not a clear, it's not always super clear. So anytime we have a chance to conserve a species, we're building and saving resiliency in these ecosystems. And we know that these ecosystems are facing lots and lots and lots of other threats. So the more resiliency we can preserve and conserve, uh, the better off those ecosystems are likely to be, even if we can't draw a direct roadmap. All right. And uh, speaking of uh, a direct roadmap, we went from less than 100 to around 300 mm -hmm. um, over what I'm guessing is around 20 years. Uh, what happened? How did 
How did this this level of success occur? Yeah. So at its lowest point, uh, we went from 30 Vancouver environments to today somewhere between two and 300. And, and that was a direct result of recovery efforts. So uh, a number of the Vancouver Island marmots that did remain in the wild were brought into captivity, into captive breeding. And that, that's sometimes controversial. It's, and it's certainly not our goal to, um, to conserve marmots in zoos. Our goal is to have wild marmots. But at the time, we felt that the only way to accomplish that was to bring some of the marmots that remained uh, into captivity where we could try and care for them and get their breeding rate up high and then start releasing captive bred marmots to the wild. So that's what we began to do. And, and it's been really successful. We've released at the end of this year, we will have released 490 marmots to the wild. Um, but that's over a space of about 13 years now. So a lot of them have died in that time. And that's, that's normal. Marmots only have about a maximum of 10 year lifespan typically. So we're definitely going to lose uh, a number as time progresses. But that program in general has been really successful. And once you begin to reestablish some of the marmots in the wild, then you can go back and start looking at trying to increase their wild productivity. So uh, we're doing things like trying to feed the marmots in the wild in the early spring. And what, we, what we've what we seen happen is that if they get an extra bit of early food, they produce more pups more often, more successfully. Trying to get that wild uh, reproduction happening. And that really does seem to be taking off well, increasing slowly, maybe taking off as an exaggeration. But we're definitely seeing more wild pups born now than we did in the past. And that we're really, really excited about that. So we're hoping to see that continue. And at some point here, um, we don't know exactly when it's going to be, but what we're hoping for is that we'll get to a point where the population can sustain itself in the wild without the need for us to be releasing pups born in captivity out to the wild. And so that's, that is our, our goal ultimately is to get to a point where the marmots don't really need us to be doing these big dramatic interventions that we're doing now. Uh, and we're able to step back and the population is able to sustain itself. Well, and I think something that's important to note, um, and I can tell that the zoo thing is, is a little uncomfortable and it, it, it makes sense. But I think, and this is something I've talked with Rob Laidlaw at Zoo Check about a few times yeah. is when we talk about captive breeding programs, what is the intent of the captive breeding program? And in this case, it is clearly to release the animals. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of other times, I think it's captive breeding for the sake of having more animals uh, in confinement. But uh, that's just sort of an aside. Um, and what about predators? Because this is something that we often hear, uh, that if you want to protect a prey species, and obviously in BC and Alberta right now, we're looking at mountain caribou yeah. um, as the big one. Uh, in Ontario, we're looking a little bit at moose, but it's, mm. it's still a little unsure on the numbers um but it's often well we've got to get rid of the predators because they're the number one problem so how do you deal with a, a the predators uh being a uh, quote-unquote problem yeah. and b how and i don't think i have a b so just how do you <laughs> so how do you deal with predators when and i don't i don't have a soapbox to stand on i suppose i mean i more than anything else, what I feel is is sad when when biologists and and conservationists are working in these situations where um, they are you know genuinely passionate about one species and and feel that to say that you know another species uh, is is preventing its recovery. Um, and I know that that people are 
well-meaning and and really really truly passionate on on both sides of this issue and i i hope that we can harness that passion i think for the marmots you know we're in a fortunate position now where predation is um is not at it's not going to drive the species to extinction we have tools to deal with that without going out and, and killing you know uh wolves or cougars or, or eagles at this point and that that I think is really important. And it's really important, I think, to pursue non-lethal approaches to, to controlling predators. And there are non-lethal approaches available. So we, you know, we've used techniques like shepherding, where you literally just put people with marmots, uh, and, uh, and people tend to scare away predators. So, so that tends to work. That actually worked quite well in the past. Um, we are exploring a couple of other techniques, trying to use uh, auditory deterrence. So I know one researcher is interested in looking at uh, whether or not um, the sounds of people. So even if we don't have people present, because it's hard to get people into these alpine scenarios, it can be expensive and it can be dangerous sometimes. So what if we just put it, you know, basically, a, you know, a tape player out there and it occasionally randomly played sounds from people, you know, can you scare people away? And I, I personally feel very more comfortable with that kind of approach. We, there can be a move to try and villainize predators in these type of scenarios. And I think it's really important to remember that predators have always been a part of the marmots experience. They are a prey species and they are going to be eaten by predators. Uh, the issues that have led to this system aren't a result of predators doing something dramatically new. It's a result of the way that we've changed those ecosystems, the way that humans have changed those ecosystems so that the relationship between predators and marmots have changed. So if we want to deal with these issues in the long term, we need to make sure that we're really looking at how we've changed those ecosystems and what we can do to bring those ecosystems and habitats back to a scenario where the relationship between predator and prey is more like it would have been in the past, more like it would have been historically, rather than look at the predators themselves as being, um, you know, a, just a problem to be disposed of. And, and so that's really the approach that we've tried to take is to try and identify ways that um, we can restore the habitat and uh, and create scenarios where marmots are uh, m more capable of detecting the predators. They have this social mechanism, so they have to be able to see predators uh, and then able to warn their other, col their other colony mates. And you know that it's, it's a really hard pit to, to sort of climb out of, and it would be easier uh, in some ways, or at least quicker, um, to try and, and maybe just get rid of the predators. But I really don't think that that's the right approach. Uh, and, and in part because predators play a phenomenally important role in ecosystems. So when we remove predators, we talked earlier about how when you change an ecosystem, right, that has ongoing impacts way away from the area where you've made those changes. And predators are an incredible example of that. We know that they are driving forces in ecosystems. They play a huge role in shaping our ecosystems on Vancouver Island, in everywhere on the globe. Predators play a massive role in shaping those ecosystems. So if you just remove them outright from the landscape, you're going to have huge impacts. So how can we, how can we try not to do that? How can we, 
work with the landscape in a way where we minimize our impact while restoring our species. And that's definitely what we're trying to do with the marmot is trying to restore the marmot species, but hopefully not have a huge impact on the ecosystems around it at the same time, at least not a negative impact. Yeah. Now, it was, that was a pretty long rambling. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a, uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear different perspectives on this. And part of the problem, I think, is too frequently uh, uh, in the media and, and policymakers themselves end up saying it's X, Y, or Z, when really it's the whole damn alphabet that you need to look at. Um, yeah, yeah, I I certainly agree, and I think, you know, I I hate to put the onus on money, but a a large part of the problem as well is is money. I think there's it it is uh, a lot cheaper to uh, simply remove predators than it is to fix habitat, and uh, and it's a lot quicker. And we don't have a lot of money on the conservation side of things. So we're always trying to skimp and cut corners and figure out how we can save money. And there is constant pressure from uh, policymakers to, uh, you know, to take that into overdrive. So it can be hard to push back sometimes and, uh, and still, uh, you know, save a species that you're passionate about. It's a, it's a really, uh, difficult scenario. I have a lot of empathy for the people who are, you know, involved in making some of those decisions. But, um, you know, it is it is too often in my mind about about money and about funding. Um, and uh, and that's a real shame. I mean, I really wish that there were more resources available to conservationists. And uh, anyway, so that there's there's my soapbox. There you go. We got it. Um... Now was that was the uh, the the auditory stuff? Was that Justin Siraci's Siraki Siraci's work from Raincoast? No, no. Um, I have to look up the name of the researcher, but uh, it's an, another. It's a woman from um, the Laurentian University who okay. into that. Yeah, because this one I uh, I actually interviewed earlier this year, a PhD student, and he uh, is using uh, uh, the sound of wild dogs barking to impact mesopredators like raccoons and therefore the prey species that they're focused on. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, that's, I, it sounds kind of similar. It's really interesting. It sounds really similar. And, you know, meso, we talked to earlier about what happens when you remove alpha predators, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the largest predators in an ecosystem. And we know one of the big impacts that happens when you remove them is that the mesopredators, mid-level predators, their populations tend to explode. Yeah, mesopredator release. Uh, and that's, I mean, if you want to have a conversation about that, just go talk to raccoons in Toronto. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. And uh, and so you know that, I, I've often heard it called a landscape of fear. There's a landscape of fear that a lot of these species operate in. And, um, and it, it's sort of a cascading landscape of fear. So you know, the, the alpha predators, they tend to impact the mid-level predators and that fear impact can have really broad uh, consequences. So we know, for instance, in urban parks that birds, even though they're not necessarily being eaten by cats, just the fact that cats are present in their ecosystems reduces their reproductive success by huge amounts, 30%, 40%, sometimes more. So, you know, that's all about fear. And so, yeah, anyways, I, I've got to touch bases with Raincoast, clearly, because that's a really interesting study, and I'd love to see how we could apply that 
uh, and that kind of research up in in some of these areas where the marmots are and uh, it's a hard environment to work in and as I say the easiest answer is to put people up there but that's not always you know safe or realistic so uh, what else can we do how else can we create these sort of little landscapes where we're reducing and getting back to a period where you know that the interactions between marmots and predators are just a little bit less frequent so it's all about those statistics and sort of working in those margins trying to just reduce the amount of interaction they have you don't need to eliminate it just get it a little bit lower than it is today um yeah and uh i I guess we have to talk about the, the latest news that came out, uh, and we, we did a blog on this and shared some of the information. Um, what happened over winter regarding uh, uh, the marmots? Uh, there, there was some news about some of them either missing or dying. Well, both. So in one of, we have sort of three major regions that we have marmots in, and it's really important to us to have multiple regions. That's a uh, a safe uh, safeguard for the species uh, and this sort of illustrates why so in one of our regions the Strathcona region since last July we've lost at least 36 marmots now there's only 72 marmots in that region to begin with so that's half the population uh, there's another 20 some marmots that we still haven't been able to locate and we don't know what their fate is and not being able to locate a marmot doesn't lead us anywhere. It doesn't mean that the marmot's alive or dead or anything. We just we don't know until we find that marmot later. So, you know, that's a huge part of that, uh, of that population. So the big question, of course, is you asked is, well, why? And I'd love to give you a definitive answer and just say, well, this is what happened. But of course, we don't know. Because they live in the Alpine. We're not there as much as we would like. Uh, the last time we checked up on them, sort of in July, late July, they seem to be doing okay. When we checked up again in uh, August, early September, a number of the marmots had seemed to go down for hibernation a little bit early, but that wasn't terribly unusual, so we didn't read a lot into it at the time. And then, uh, and then in the winter seemed to be a fairly ordinary winter. So this spring, as we went back out to find the marmots, and began to realize it was sort of a developing story that emerged over time as we began to realize there was a real loss there. Sort of go back and you start to, you know, second guess yourself, I suppose, and some of the things that you began to observe in the previous year. And what we were seeing in hindsight was that we had a really early spring the year before. The year before there had been record levels of no snow. We literally had no snow in some of these spots that are often covered by 10 feet or more of snow. Never had snowpack levels that low. We were deeply concerned at that point that the marmots would be adversely affected by that. But when they woke up in the spring, they seemed to actually be in really good body shape, really good condition. So we were, we were really happy. But hindsight is that spring started a month earlier than normal. All of these flowering plants that the marmots feed off of, all of their foliage, uh, they all started to emerge in these alpine habitats way earlier than is normal. And then we had a really long drought, hot summer. And our, our thinking now is that the combination of an early production of plants followed by a really long drought, that a lot of that plant material that the marmots rely on may have dried up before the marmots were actually ready to go down for hibernation. And if that's the case, that could be, that could have been big trouble for the marmots. So if they don't have enough body reserves, 
then they simply won't live through that seven-month hibernation. And in the Strathcona region, where we saw these high mortality rates, uh, the conditions there are, are particularly uh, difficult for people. And in this case, it might have been really difficult for marmots too. There's not a lot of ways to move around the mountains, a lot of cliffs, uh, a lot of rock outcrop. And as agile as the marmots are, and they certainly put me to shame, they they may not have been able to move around to areas that were maybe a little bit more sheltered, maybe got it just a bit more moisture. The good news is that in our other two locations at Mount Washington and then in our region called the Nanaimo Lakes area, which is further south, uh, the marmots there did pretty well over winter and we are not seeing anything unusual. So this is this is a problem with, you know, whenever you're dealing with uh, critically endangered species, every time you lose a, a higher percentage than normal, it, uh, you sort of go into crisis mode and we are certainly concerned about it. And yet at the same time, we have seen not, not the same set of conditions, but we have seen declines like this in the past in some of the other regions where there was some type of event. In the past, typically it's been that the winter was particularly harsh and the snow didn't melt in the spring. Uh, so sort of the reverse of what we're seeing here. But again, where a number of marmots have died and through the captive release program, we're, we're now able to work through that. We're able to bring that population back up. It's a setback, but it's not it's not pushing that species back to the absolute brink of extinction we started out at. And so I, that's my silver lining is this is a really hard time and we're certainly going to have to look at um, try and find out some more evidence to ensure that we understand better exactly what did happen and figure out if there's any steps that we can take. You know, maybe in the future, if we're beginning to see similar conditions, early spring, long dry summer, maybe we need to be putting some additional food out for the marmots in the fall. Uh, that's That might be one approach. Um, but the good news is that we have the opportunity to take those approaches. We had 36 marmots die this year. If that had happened in 2003, the species would be extinct today. So we're just incredibly fortunate that we are where we are, where we're at with the recovery program and that the population can sustain this and, and recover. And for people who want to get involved with this, who, who, who hear this, who see about the Marmot Foundation, who read about it in the news, what can average people either on Vancouver Island or across the country or the world be doing to support your work? Well, of course, the big one is uh, we appreciate everybody's gifts. And I, I need to make this really clear. Our work is funded by, uh, by donors who um, provide us with the resources we need to do this work. If it weren't for, we have roughly 10,000 people who donate to us annually. And if it weren't for them, this species would not be here today. So, uh, Obviously, I'm extremely grateful, and, and that is the, the first thing that people can do to help the marmot. If you happen to live on Vancouver Island, then uh, certainly you need to keep your eyes open for marmots. We do get marmots that are lost. Last year, uh, we, uh, we found a marmot in Bamfield on the west coast of the island. Uh, people speculate that maybe it wanted to go surfing. We uh, Not really, and that's not where it should be. And, and every single marmot counts right now. So we, we recover those marmots, we remove, we move them up into an alpine habitat, we try and find a potential mate for it, and release it nearby uh, a potential mate. And that's what we've seen is marmots tend to wander a little bit unless they can find somebody that uh, might be a potential mate, and then they'll tend to settle down. So if you see a marmot, 
you need, please, please call us and we will send out people to try and recover it. Um, and we've had a few reports already this year of, of marmots on the loose. So, you know, that that's a really important thing that people can do. And then finally, you know, marmots are, uh, are going to be heavily impacted by climate change. And, and we are seeing that in some of their habitats already where, for instance, trees are beginning to grow in what used to be these treeless alpine bowls. So, you know, we often hear about the think globally, act locally. And uh, I think the marmots are a primary example of that. This is a species we can recover. They operate though in a global, uh, you know, in a global context. So climate change, all those things that we do that impact the environment at that level impact marmots as well. Um, and, and this is a species where your gifts and, and your donations, it is saving this species and it really can work. We can really bring this species back from the brink. To learn more about the Marmot Recovery Foundation or get involved, visit marmots.org. That's it for this week, folks. I hope you all had a great Canada Day or Independence Day long weekend and are back, healthy and happy, ready to help the animals. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.